0: My guest today is Professor Gordon Fisher, who is a professor of neurobiology at Harvard Medical School and the Stanley Center at the Broad Institute. He's a developmental uh, neurobiologist interested in how the architecture of brain circuits are assembled with a special focus on the diverse populations of inhibitory interneurons. Welcome, Gordon. Great to be here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. Um, I want to use one of your papers to, to sort of set the context for our conversation. And it's entitled Interneuron Types as Attractors and Controllers, in which you say cortical interneurons display striking differences in shape, physiology, and other attributes, challenging us to appropriately classify them. You say we previously suggested that inter-neuron types should be defined by their role in cortical processing, uh, but here you revisit the question of how to codify their diversity based upon their division of labor and function as controllers and cortical information flow. Um, it, it's um, so. Before we get into it, uh, God, you know, I have some interest in artificial intelligence um clearly we haven't really progressed a lot there even though there's a lot of hype <laughs> hype around it and uh you know i, I think a, a a more detailed understanding of the mechanics of the brain uh, is not only useful for neurobiology but also for other fields so uh before we get into it what exactly is an interneuron
1: um it's pretty much what it sounds like it is a neuron that connects one neuron to another neuron, so an interface between two different neurons. In the context I use it, there are also local interneurons, which is to say there are lots of neurons that talk to other neurons. As a matter of fact, that is the characteristic of most neurons in your brain. Hmm. These ones uh, restrict their connections, both in input and output, to very local areas. So they're part of a computation foci in the brain Rather than being distributed across uh, different functional areas, and in our case, they they're entirely inhibitory in nature.
0: So computational. So um, just just at a very high level, uh, we have something like humans have something like hundred billion neurons in a typical brain.
1: That that is the number I've heard bantered around. Yes,
0: approximately, and uh, and these things are. Um, sort of, uh, so the, is it correct to think about neurons, sort of communication vehicles, uh, sort of cables, and the interneurons are doing a lot of the computation? Is it the right way to think about it? I
1: think there's a real danger, particularly, uh, particularly people in computer science, I think, (laughs) uh, tend to think of uh, circuits in the brain like a circuits in an electronic board and maybe that is becoming truer i'm not a computer scientist yeah. but th- you have to think about information flow in the brain as something that is constantly converging and diverging so yeah. what i mean by that is what is the context in which any given neuron in the brain f- fires it's the coincident excitation by many cells sitting upstream of it which mm-hmm. if you get the right timing of excitation, make it fire. And then its contribution to signaling has to do with all the other cells that it is impinging on in terms of creating excitation to propagate that signal. So that's mm-hmm. the excitatory side. I happen to work on the inhibitory side, which is shaping the signal. It doesn't actually create information. It actually uh, times it and shapes it.
0: Okay, so, so that, is, that is what you call sort of the controller. Um, uh, of that information flow so so that 's very interesting so if uh, if we if we have some sort of deficiency uh, in there, then the neurons could still fire, but you could you could have sort of runaway type uh, type issues right in the brain
1: yeah, so the most obvious manifestation of that is epilepsy, so that 's yeah. just when you don't govern the excitation properly. Uh, people are very fond of talking about what's called E to I balance, excitatory to inhibitory balance in the brain. Hmm. Um, and it's obvious that the brain has to be really held on, 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 on the razor's edge for this. You know, it basically, you need enough information to propagate signal, but if that signal is ever not governed properly, it will lead to runaway excitation and hence seizures.
0: And so, so are interneurons sort of uh, doing that uh, post-excitation, uh, or is it just all happening altogether?
1: Um, so there are different types of... It. What makes the interneurons interesting from a functional point of view is that each one of them is specialized both in the time scale in which they yeah. they control inhibition, and in how actually in the circuits they gate inhibition. So inhibition can occur on the input side of a, a neuron, which the dendrites, which is where they get their excitatory information. That mm. information passively flows to the cell body, the soma, where uh, a phenomenon, which is referred to as all or nothing, the action potential occurs. And that results in the propagation of that signal to downstream cells. And so inhibitory cells can work the dendrite, the soma, or the axon to mediate that. So it's both the spatial
0: and temporal control. Okay. And so from a design uh, perspective, I, I'm looking at it very mechanistically, God, uh, because I don't, I don't know <laughs> how the brain looks like, but uh, is it sort of the neurons um, floating in? Uh, interneuron gel. What is the uh, what's sort of the design of the brain in that in that context? So the
1: part of the brain I tend to study, uh, and yeah. you know, every part of the brain is a mixture of excitatory inhibitory cells. That's just the nature of signaling. But the part I'm most interested in is the cerebral cortex, and from an engineering <laughs> point of view, um, there's a developmental principle there which I I think engineers would do well to think about. And that is Mm -hmm. that the cerebral cortex is organized in a way that the earliest born cells are born deep and you can, uh, as development occurs, you layer on towards the outermost cells. And Mm -hmm. it turns out the innermost cells of the cortex are the output layers. The intermediate layers are the input layers. And then on top of that are the associational layers that connect one area to another. And there are specialized interneurons in each one of those layers, which are probably important to the w- allowing the brain to function the way it does.
0: Right. Okay. And so, so the inside layer is the output layer. Uh, and so, is this design or sort of the sequence of this uh, inside, intermediate, and outside functionality? Is it unique to humans, or we find that in mice brain and, and other other animals?
1: So. I mean, this is a, a question that people have challenged themselves uh, with since uh, the time of y Cajal. What is the human advantage? Why do we at least perceive ourselves to have higher cognitive functions than other species? Mm-hmm. Um, so in mammals, the cerebral cortex is a ubiquitous feature, uh, and this organization is very clearly there in everything from rodents all the way up to humans, whales any mammal you care, care, care to think about. Um, mm-hmm. The sophistication of the cerebral cortex is clearly higher developed in terms of humans than mouse. And the really striking anatomical feature that sets us apart from uh, lower mammals is that the associational part of the cortex is greatly expanded.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so so the as the brain got more complex, I'm uh, thinking about the sort of the evolutionary aspect of this, uh, at some point, uh, it had to do the uh, sort of put a lot of different units uh, in, in, a, in a concerted dance, right? So the, so the, the association part then becomes, um, becomes very important. So, so we don't see uh, that type of a sophisticated association layer, let's say in a mouse brain.
1: Um, you do see it, and you know. Again, I think there's a danger in putting a hierarchy in terms of cognitive function uh, to a mouse being inherently stupider than us. A mouse <laughs> yeah. is a hundred million years from us, and it does things that mice do very, very well. Um, right. But the constraints which allow it to survive are different than the constraints that allow us to survive. I, I think it is probably fair to say that the human brain is. Uh, more elaborate and more sophisticated than the mouse brain. And there probably is higher computational ability in us. But, you know, frankly, if you look at a porpoise brain uh, and the human brain, you you would, I think, immediately be struck by the fact that the porpoise brain, if anything, looks more complex than our brain. Mm
0: -hmm. It's a question of specialization also, right? So um, any animal will have specialization in the brain for what they are seeking to do. Um, whether it is you know having higher abilities to smell or taste or whatever the case may be, and so you will see higher and higher development based on um, what the objective function is, so to speak. And so, 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 would you say from an evolutionary perspective, God, I, I don't know if it's an answerable question, whether this is an accident uh, in the human brain that happened, then we took advantage of it. Or is it something that, that happened because we were seeking to develop uh, certain skills?
1: Yeah, I, 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 I can remember being in, in uh, an aquarium once and hearing, overhearing a woman talk about uh, whales. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, the sign said whales were once land animals and they went back to the sea. And the woman exclaimed, I wonder why they did that. and i was just shaking my head because obviously they didn't no one decided that you know uh yeah you know there's a selection process of human beings and uh there was in a selection advantage for human beings to have increased brain size it's very clear that compared to neanderthals and cro magnum man uh uh cortical volume and particularly it's hard to know exactly because the soft tissues don't survive but I think it's, it's quite reasonable based on uh, the brain cases of, of more primitive uh, non-human primates or human primates uh, that, uh, yeah, there was a selection for bigger brains, and that gave mm-hmm. a survival advantage.
0: Right. So, so this area that you, you study a lot, God, the cerebral cortex, um, and so th- there is a very interesting sequence of these things happening from birth, Right. And, and you have done a lot of work here. So uh, if I understand this correctly, uh, there is some sort of migration that happens and some sort of organization that happens to uh, intraneurons neurons over, over uh, SVH from birth?
1: Yeah. So to kind of deconvolve the organization of the cerebral cortex a little bit, um, yeah. essentially your cerebral cortex only has two major flavors of cells. The excitatory cells, which, for the lack of a better analogy, are lines that bring in sensory information from the periphery into the brain and then take that information post-processing back out to the muscles to do effective action. And then there are the inhibitory cells, which shape and gate that, which are the ones I tend to study uh, in my work. What's fascinating, both from an evolutionary point of view and from a from just a, a structural organizational point of view, is that they come from different areas. It turns out that the excitatory cells in your brain are all born locally within your brain, and <laughs> almost certainly have a uh, intrinsic topology to it. Um, a, a famous uh, scientist Pashko Rakesh, calls this the proto-map hypothesis, which is the idea that the proliferative zones where part of your brain is organized for visual information, somatosensory, cognitive, motor function, are probably baked in uh, in the progenitors and organized in a way that you transpose the proliferative cells directly above them onto the cortical structure. The inhibitory right. cells are interlopers. They're actually born in an a, a, a entirely different part of the brain subcortically, mm-hmm. and they literally invade the brain in the first week, uh, well, late embryonic and early postnatal development, depending on species.
0: Hmm. Wow. And so um, is there some need for the excitatory cells to be left alone for a period of time?
1: Um, I think the two really, it's, it's pretty much a, a, uh, a match that's brought together as the cortex comes online you know, the first thing we talked about in inhibition is you've got to control runaway excitation in the brain. And that's as true developmentally as in the adult. So one thing you may have heard is that young children sometimes have febrile seizures, that if they get a Mm -hmm. high fever, they can get a seizure. Um, And that's reflective of the fact that young children uh, don't have a fully mature control system for inhibition. Mm -hmm. But uh, in order for the brain to form properly, uh, evolution really makes sure that the excitatory cells can't come online until there's inhibition to keep it in check.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking again where there was some evolutionary advantage from a selection perspective in, in early, um, you know, right after birth, obviously 50,000 years ago, that would have been a very, very vulnerable time um, for, for a newborn. Uh, do we see any advantages of so so a, the inhibitory cells are born elsewhere and then uh, sort of migrate into that area. So so where are they where are they born and where are they manufactured so to speak? So
1: um, yeah, this takes a little bit of anatomy to understand. The, the the cortex is divided into what's called pallium and subpallium, which is pretty much yeah. what it sounds like. Pallium is the part on top. And subpallium is the part underneath the pallium. Mm-hmm. Um, the subpallium is formed of older brain structures evolutionarily, the basal ganglia. So, mm-hmm. uh, any uh, reptile or bird has a pretty developed basal ganglia, and certainly our cortex lacking uh, ancestors had a basal ganglia. And the cerebral yeah. cortex expanded. Um, it's, it's really the thing that sets mammals apart uh, in, in that uh, species or that, that branch of the evolutionary tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that the excitatory cells in the cerebral cortex are both more diverse, both in terms of region and mm-hmm. in terms of how they've been conserved over evolution. So the excitatory cells are kind of the new part of the brain which has come in and uh, allowed the cerebral cortex to function. And the inhibition seems to be much, much older. Some beautiful work from Gilles Laurent and Marie uh um, mm-hmm. in the MPI in, in Frankfurt showed that the interneurons in turtles are a lot like the interneurons in us, whereas the excitatory cells are quite different.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so so how does that, um, is migration the right term? Right, um, yeah, it's, it, uh, it literally yeah.
1: is that – the, the beautiful work, I'm sorry, the, I, I, I lo- you know, the, the essence of science in my, my mind is the people who make the discoveries. So I, I'm sure yeah. for most of your readers, these names will mean nothing. They mean an awful lot to me. These are my heroes. So I, I apologize yeah. if I keep dropping names, but it, it's oh, because sure, I think if, you, if anyone wants to read about it, these are the right people. So uh, some work back in the, the late 1990s by a friend of mine, Stuart Anderson and John Rubenstein. Basically, uh, back then, we thought the inhibitory and excitatory cells were both born in the cortex, and what they showed is this incredible uh, um, occurrence, which they were able to demonstrate occurs, which is the inhibitory cells literally are born down in the bottom beneath the cerebral cortex, and through this process called tangential migration, literally migrate in mice, centimeters, and in humans, many centimeters to get up and invade the brain.
0: Hmm. How long does it take? Uh, so so uh, how, I guess uh, a mature brain will have everything there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so when does a brain mature, I guess, uh, from a human perspective? Okay,
1: so a human being has, as you're probably aware, you say there's nine months of gestation. It's actually 10. Ask any pregnant woman, she'll correct you. <laughs> yeah. So in that 10 months, uh, most of the neurogenesis is... Really uh, well underway uh, by the second trimester, so that's you know the six-month period, and that six-month mm-hmm. to birth period, and maybe up to the first year in humans, if we're being generous, but probably really mo- the first three months or so um, is when all this assembly process is occurring. So let's say uh, six months of gestation, so three months before birth the neurons start being born, they continue to be born up to about birth, but from six months to birth, there's a whole lot of neurons that are crawling around the brain and assembling themselves in the circuits appropriately.
0: Yeah, and how about the interneurons? neurons? So, so when do they actually get there?
1: Um, so they're getting up in the brain of a human probably uh, starts about seven months of gestation, it's already started in six. Uh, And they they keep moving around probably up until the first or second uh, year uh, after birth.
0: Okay. And so so if they don't... So there is a design there, obviously. There is a plan there for uh, what you call tangential migration. Uh, But it seems... um, is a lot of risk there that things don't actually get to the right spot in a, yeah, in so, a configuration. You know, yeah.
1: one of the things, so you started this conversation by discussing, well, I find these cells particularly interesting because they're so diverse. There's so many different types of them. And so my yeah. original interest in the problem came from trying to ask the question of how do you make all these types? And you just asked a, a really salient question, which is, it's not just making the types. How do you make the right types and get them in the right place so they do the right thing? Yeah. So uh, the yeah. model I've kind of worked on this is kind of a two-step model, which combines nature and nurture. So I think mm-hmm. there are big classes. There are four major types of these interneurons that are born, and that is bred in, uh, bred in the bone. That That's a genetically imposed identity that's put on them but by the time you get into the adult there's maybe 60 different types and I think that part of the way we make sure the right types get in the right place is they basically get information that they learn on the job so they migrate to where they're going and the first thing they do is talk to their neighbors and get information about how they should modify their themselves to be maximally useful depending on where they get up mm. so it's not that you tell every cell exactly where to go you give them general directions and then you where wherever they end up they basically get uh kind of uh, just in time instructions from the cells they end up sitting
0: beside right so so the the ultimate configuration um, so that is why I call it nature and nurture ultimate configuration has a lot sort of uh, st- uh, it's stochastic in some ways. We, we, it is not really fully designed. It, it is sort of happens. Uh, a percentage of it is fully designed, but a percentage of it is sort of happens. Yeah. So if
1: if I'm being um, uh, fair to the field, I think there is some argument right now between the nature and the nurturers. Um, I would tend to argue that um, a fair bit of the information they get, they get only after they get to the right place. Um, fly brains, for instance, there's good evidence there that it's much more genetic, that it, essentially the cell has a complete instruction set from the beginning and mm. already has a preordained idea of where it's going to go and how it's going to connect. Um, I think one of the tricks evolution has done in, in human brains and even in most brains is to get a lot more learning on the job.
0: Mm. Mm. And and the outcomes are not predictable. Yeah. So in, in some you sense, use the
1: word stochastic. Yeah. I think that would be the right one. It's not that they're random. I think people often get stochastic and random confused. Um, <laughs> right. Which you seem to appreciate the difference. So the the odds are strongly biased, so that that you know you so you get the right. You know, you couldn't get a, a predicted outcome if it was random. You can only get that if it's stochastic.
0: Right. And so so from a diagnostic perspective, from a disease diagnostic perspective, uh, the first couple of years, uh, um, you know, that data doesn't uh, give any clues as to what, what might be in, in store from a, you know, kind of brain-based disease perspective. So
1: one of the things that makes brain disease so difficult to study is it's not monogenic. Yes. It, it, Uh, So there are a few brain diseases um, like uh, Rett syndrome um, where Mm. there's one specific gene that's, that's faulty in it, but most neuropsychiatric Mm. diseases are uh, uh, polygenic. Um, Mm. But we talk about risk genes, right? Um, So, you know, uh, my, my way of putting that would be, you know, you may have a mutation in a gene and it doesn't mean you're going to have schizophrenia. It just increases your odds of getting in. So mm-hmm. there seems to be a complex mix of genetics that goes into brain disease. But the idea that brain disease is strongly genetic comes from twin studies where, you know, the co- uh, comorbidity for autism, for instance, is very high mm-hmm. in uh, identical twins, for instance.
0: Right, but but this um, um, this migration issue um, is it possible for us to actually actually see if that migration is happening uh, in some expected way? I mean, we already talked about it being stochastic, but are there patterns in the brain that might actually give some clues that there might be more you know more problematic association there? Very very early, like first couple of years.
1: Yeah, so there there are a lot. My my colleague over at uh, 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 Children's, uh, Chris Walsh, has done a lot of genetics on migratory defects in humans, uh, and he's actually there's all these heterotopias where the cells don't migrate properly that result in Mm -hmm. uh, uh, intellectual disability. So very clearly, if the migration doesn't occur properly the brain's not going to function properly. And there are genes associated that can cause migration defects.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll take a quick uh, break, uh, God, and when we come back, we'll talk about a couple of your other pages. Sure. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, God, uh, we've been talking about interneurons in the brain, their inhibitory, uh, actions in the brain, um, and from a human perspective, uh, their effects on the cerebral cortex, and, and really from a design perspective, the fact that they're generated elsewhere in the brain and over time actually migrate into that area to make a, uh, to, to to make a full-fledged brain, so to speak. Uh, now, there's a mm-hmm. lot of lot of variety there, uh, and so you have another paper. Developmental diversification of cortical inhibitory interneurons, in which you say diverse subsets of cortical interneurons have vital roles in higher order brain functions, and to investigate how this diversity is generated, uh, you used a single cell RNA sequencing to profile profile the transcriptomes of mouse cells collected along a development time time course. So, so you so you're you're studying basically one a few mouse models over over a period of time, sort of a longitudinally?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that study came out in 2017. It, this is all based on this incredible technology uh, that was developed by my colleagues, Steve McCarroll and Evan McCasco, yeah. where you can now take individual cells and literally tag all the RNAs so you know exactly what genes are turned on in each of the neurons. Mm. And so we use that in mouse um, a couple of years ago to try tracking the cells from the time they were born to the time they mature and try understanding how gene expression changes. Mm-hmm. More recently, just in the last year, in another collaboration led by Steve McCarroll's lab and with Guoping Fang and me, um, we were able to uh, compare the same interneuron types in uh, primate versus mouse, which gives you kind of another perspective of that diversity.
0: And so... Um, so, so you're looking at uh, a mouse model uh, over a period of time, right? So the the the, the mouse is actually growing up. Well,
1: you're it you're taking from different mice. Oh, okay. The, the mice okay. are taken. It would be wonderful if you could fo- follow the same cell and literally check in on its gene expression right. at different times to look at it. But since that proves to be at present impossible, what you do is you choose the same cells over time and then link them together. Uh, because you can, keep, they're similar enough that you can guess what a P two cell will look at it like a P four or P ten. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, okay, and so so the diversity uh, seems to be quite important, right? So, um, is there some sort of classification scheme that you can bring to bring to at least a, a mouse brain?
1: Yeah. So, I, it, mouse human doesn't matter. Yeah. The same classifications uh, exist. Um, classically the uh, classification was all about their shape that's what (laughs) caught people's eye long before they knew they were inhibitory what we could see is that the different types had very characteristic dendritic and (laughs) axonal arbors back in the uh, 80s we started getting an idea that the morphological differences were matched by um, gene expression differences and by electrical differences so different ones Uh, The way a neuron functions is when it gets excited to a certain point, it fires. And it turns out these different neurons fire at startlingly different rates from Mm -hmm. uh, the slowest ones, which go at about 40 hertz to the fastest ones that can top out around 200 hertz. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so 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 that is mediated by um, mediated by the interneurons and and. And so uh, the, the, the variety that we see there, uh, is there some sort of conclusion we can make that you know what might be the, the necessary diversification that you need for a brain to operate?
1: So one of the surprises, at least for me, you know you could have imagined that <clears throat> a simpler brain required less of a repertoire of inhibitory cells, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. one hypothesis, which I actually favored, was that a lizard may have much simpler interneurons and that you get more complex as the uh, brain becomes more complex. That doesn't seem to be the case. Mm -hmm. You have this repertoire and the repertoire, as I said, is designed to deal with excitation along the two metrics of space and time. So they, they fire at different rates and that means you can have slow or fast inhibition and they also target different parts of the cells so that you can prevent input to the cells or prevent output to the cells or prevent the cells from actually undergoing uh, depolarization or firing.
0: Mm, okay. Generally speaking, these are not um, cells that the, the brain can create over time, right? So they are, they're sort of locked in early, right? Does yeah, so that, yeah.
1: That's that, there's been a lot of speculation about adult neurogenesis over the years. Yeah. Um I would say I'm not being uh unkind in saying that at this point the notion that there's any significant new neurons made excitatory or inhibitory in the adult seems very unlikely.
0: Mm. Um but we we do see adults picking up completely new skills, um, you know, even um some movements of the limbs and so on. Um so we see skills and, and, you know, those types of training happening in old brains. So, so how do, how do we explain that? Well,
1: one of my favorite stories, which gets at that was by Jeff Lichtman who gave a Ted talk. And Mm -hmm. he, he made the point that when he was a young child, he learned how to ride a bike and then he didn't ride a bike for 30 years because he was in St. Louis and then he moved back to Boston Mm -hmm. and Two weeks later, he was riding a bike as well as he did as a child. Right, um, And then he asked the audience, he said, so how many of you out there learned to ride a bike as an adult? <laughs> and uh, a woman said, me. And he said, well, how's that going? And she goes, not so well. <laughs> so yes, you can acquire new skills, but it is uh, absolutely untrue to say that my ability to learn uh, motor skills as an adult uh, is anywhere compared to what it was when I was 12.
0: Yeah. So, so I wondered, God, I don't know if there's any data on this. So motor skills are really complex. um, And I wondered if, you know, intellectual skills, um, such as picking up a language, you know, things like that. Do we have any data that shows that is a little easier?
1: Um, I think the two are pretty Pretty uh, uh coincident. I, I for anyone who's ever had uh, learn languages or have child children learning languages, you have incredibly more ability to learn motor or cognitive skills as a young child, and you it basically gets a trade off that, um, you know, if you ever one of my favorite uh, ways of demonstrating improved motor function, which is easier to track than cognitive function in some ways is if you basically took a high speed film of a really crappy tennis player serving 10 times Mm. versus a really good tennis player. And what you find is the good tennis player has these stereotype movements. They've really streamlined it in a beautiful way. Mm. So there's, there's this trade off, right? So learning is about the ability to get an ensemble of neurons that roughly covers the task and young kids either in motor or cognitive tasks are really good at recruiting large ensembles and getting them recruited there. But of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with the cognitive skills of a uh, violin uh, aficionado or a pro baseball player. Um, and they are long after the period where maximal learning occurs. So the really interesting thing about us being long lived and having these brains that basically are, are, all we got at birth is all we got at death is the ability to once you instill skills to mm. keep them uh, untainted throughout your life. So I think it's those are the two sides. Developmentally, learning motor or, or cognitive is really your forte. In the adult, retaining skills that you you acquired is really an, a remarkable feat.
0: Mm. And th- there was some hypothesis. Uh, God, I don't know what the status of this is. Um, they were saying if you are highly specialized. Such as a you know professional, a, a medical doctor, an engineer, a physicist, uh, they tend to tend to have higher specialization, and hence, um, and not hence, but also show higher probability of Alzheimer's. Uh, whereas uh, people who have a variety of skills, uh, music, writing, you know, whatever you have. Um, seem, to be, uh, seem to have a less likelihood of advancing into Alzheimer's. Is, is that debunked, or what is the status well, of Well, to that? be
1: honest, I don't know the theory. Uh, I have to say it seems a little far-fetched to me. Yeah. Um, the only two correlates to brain health that I think anyone has ever shown um, is uh, restricted diet helps mm. And hmm. that's in longevity. I'm not sure that's in cognitive function. Uh, right. But uh, exercise is the best protection against decreased uh, uh, brain atrophy. So maybe the specialists just aren't going to the gym enough.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, there's a correlation, but uh, causation is, uh, is different. Uh, I want to jump into another paper that you have, a viral strategy for targeting and manipulating interneurons across vertebrate species um and so you say fundamental impediment to understanding the brain is availability of inexpensive and robust methods for targeting and manipulating specific neuronal population you want to talk a bit about um what the paper is about yeah
1: so this is really close to my heart um yeah i'm going to take it from a absolute drug discovery point of view here Um, it turned out in 1942 Uh, uh, lithium was discovered. Through the 50s and 60s, we found benzodiazepines. um, We found uh, uh, neuroleptics. We found serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors. And in 1972, the last drug, which has a truly novel uh, action, was discovered. And we've had 50 years of not really having much progress with getting drugs that help brain function. And so what was it? Why did we have 30 years of massive success for finding drugs for the brain and a 50 year drought? And Mm -hmm. I think the answer is that we got the low hanging fruit. There are only very few chemicals that allow one neuron to talk to another. Glutamate, GABA, acetylcholine, noradrenaline, but you quickly run out. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were able to manipulate in that stretch between 1940 and 1970. And where we hit a wall is the brain is inherently heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to treat neuropsychiatric disease, it's not good enough to just treat one of the major neurotransmitter communication systems. You need to get down in the weeds of very specific cells. And we utterly lack the ability to do that. And Mm -hmm. we lacked the ability to do that in anything until the 1980s, where we started getting these sophisticated genetic methods, where in a mouse we can target and manipulate a gene so that we can gain control over that gene and basically use it as a tool to understand and target very specific cell types. But if you really wanted to do that in any species, which either takes too long to productively do the genetics and stuff, you know, even a primate takes three years to go to maturity and they have very few offspring, There's just no way you can get that kind of harness on individual cells in in these higher species. And frankly, if you want to manifest changes in brain function to improve our brain function, you need that specificity to cells in humans. And we've lacked that. So Mm -hmm. a few years ago, a really wonderful postdoc in my lab, Jordan Demenstein, uh, came in and said he wanted to work specifically on the problem of seeing whether we could weaponize our ability to target and manipulate my favorite cells, the inhibitory cells, because they're <laughs> control systems. And they made sense as something where there could be real clinical benefit for targeting them. And what he did and what we, he's expanded on recently in a collaboration with me is to be able to realize with this single cell methods where we could go in and look under the hood and see exactly what genes are on in which cell allowed us to say, oh, look, this cell has this gene on and it's super selective for this cell. Let's go look at the control limits for that gene and see if we can hijack it, put it in a virus and get that virus now to only function in very specific cell types. And the cool Mm -hmm. thing is that works. So we finally can steal the genetic tools from a mouse or a human, put them in a virus and have a virus that now can manipulate the activity of very, very specific cell types. And I think it's going to really uh, be a harbinger of a whole new set of treatments for human beings. I think it's super exciting.
0: Wow. Um, th- that's really exciting. But you, you have to get the virus into the brain somehow, though, right?
1: Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. That is the fly in the ointment, so to speak. Um, <laughs> yeah. It turns out that uh, a guy who just joined us at the Broad from Caltech, a guy named Ben Deverman. Came up with, um, so how, why is it hard to get viruses in the brain? Because you have this protective covering in your brain called the blood-brain barrier. And so you can't get the viruses in the brain. If you put it in the blood, it'll just get blocked by these specialized uh, shield caused by the the lining of the blood vessels in the brain. And Mm -hmm. he did this super clever screen where he found a virus which could go across the blood-brain barrier. And he actually did something that just kind of blew my mind. We had this element which allowed a virus, if you inject it into the substance of the brain, to infect all the cells, but only turn on in the inhibitory cells. And then by using his trick, he could deliver virus throughout the brain and effectively targeted every inhibitory cell with one little blood injection in a mouse. Now, the problem is. The same trick doesn't exist in in primates or humans yet, but the fact that it works in mouse gives me great hope that we'll be able to get a system where you know someday in the not so distant future, if you're missing um, a gene, let's say, in an inhibitory cell, you'll be able to take a virus, which carries that gene, inject you in the blood, it'll cross the blood-brain barrier. It'll only turn on in the cells that, that you really need that gene and the virus will then produce that gene and you will literally be able to cure someone. Hmm. Wow.
0: Well, there was some talk God about um intranasal delivery um of stuff into the brain um you know things like insulin and there's some data that shows uh for example the uh the Spanish flu uh 1918 1919 10 years later a million people who survived that um showed Parkinson's um Parkinson's disease. Uh and so there were some, you know, um interesting conversations around what the COVID's long term effects are going to be. So if if there is an intranasal delivery mechanism into the brain somehow, um it, it appears to be uh useful here too. Um
1: I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean what it turns yeah. out is uh Yes, you can get um, viruses to get in the brain through your your nasal system, and that's yeah. almost certainly because you have this um, uh, plate of uh, olfactory epithelium where where the, the the things that allow you to smell are and the virus yeah. goes into those nerves and literally hijacks along those nerves into your olfactory system, which is probably a good good way to get a virus into a factory system but it probably isn't a great way to get it into the whole brain itself now hmm. what's rabies for instance you might wonder why getting bitten by a dog causes you to lose your mind and it turns out rabies has a super clever mechanism where it can do retrograde jumps so it basically goes into your sensory nerves goes backwards up through your sensory system and by jumping across synapses can infect your whole brain and that's why rabies hmm. causes the insanity that ensues after you get it. So viruses have some pretty clever tricks. And (laughs) uh, I I wouldn't rule out that we couldn't uh, use those tricks as a way for widespread um, distribution of viruses in the brain.
0: Yeah, I mean, this sounds like a great approach. I mean, our uh, track record hasn't been great, as you say, uh, all the chemical interventions um, on CNS diseases, if at all they are effective, they appear somewhat tactical, uh, seem to create a lot of side effects that we can really predict. And so we are still um, not uh, extremely good in treating CNS diseases, right?
1: Absolutely. I, you know, as I say, I personally think our problem with CNS diseases. um really reflects our inability to target very specific cells, which is why I think this approach is so promising. But, you know, there's another stumbling block, which is yes. in Parkinson's, we have a pretty good idea that the cells that are uh, affected are these dopamine cells. Um, Most brain diseases, we're not even that clear about what cells are affected. So we're really going to have to do some hard work to better understand what the, the orchestration of signaling is in the brain
0: before we're really going to be good at, at fixing it. Yeah, yeah. So this specific targeting appears to be the way forward. So in conclusion, God, if you look forward, say five, 10 years based on all the, all the research you have done and you are doing, um, where do you think we, we will be, especially from a, from a treatment perspective of CNS diseases?
1: Um, Okay, so let me break up CNS diseases into a few different categories.
0: So one,
1: the most prevalent CNS disease, which in my mind isn't actually a CNS disease, it's brain rot, is Alzheimer's. And that is literally, you know, neurons are the most elaborate cells in the brain. And the cost of that sort of specialization and longevity is that if you lose enough of them, you not surprisingly lose brain function. And get dementia. Mm-hmm. I think in Alzheimer's the trick's going to be a biochemical one. We're going to we're going to understand how that rot occurs, and we're going to yeah. get chemicals that stop the rot. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. going to be something. Once we get that, we'll we'll figure out who's starting to develop it and prevent the rot from occurring before it does. Other brain diseases, which I actually think are more interesting, because they're more related to the actual function of the brain rather than just simply. Uh, degeneration, are things like schizophrenia, yeah. depression, uh, or uh, bipolar disorder. And those are going <laughs> to require a better understanding of the cells. But I really think that that between the ability to target and manipulate them across model species, and the ability to modulate them in a controlled fashion, we, we are really going to start seeing some uh, amazing advances in the treatment of everything from blindness, to epilepsy, to schizophrenia, to depression. And I think it's gonna come from the specificity.
0: Yeah, that's that's great news. Uh, as a world population uh, ages, uh, this is going to be a, an increasing problem, I think, for every country. And, uh, and so, yeah, d- we definitely need different approaches to this. And uh, it seems like this is one of the areas maybe could focus on this has been great uh, god thanks so much for spending time with me it's been a pleasure and, uh, good, yeah good luck with this research okay thank Bye-bye. you this is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.